Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, Deputy Director at the IFG and this week's Deputy Presenter. Well, it's the morning after the night before. We're a little bleary-eyed, a little short of sleep, and have utterly overindulged on raw data. But we're also full of adrenaline, because here at the IFG we love elections. And right now, at midday on Friday, the votes are being counted up after polls held all across the UK. So, what do we know so far? What will all this mean for the political landscape in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? And who will be celebrating once the results are finally all in? Joining me throughout today's podcast is someone with their finger firmly on the pulse of politics, and that's the IFG senior fellow, Kath Hutton. Hi, Kath. Hello. And I'm really delighted that Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor at The New Statesman, joins us straight through a BBC studio. Hi, Anoush. Hiya. How much sleep have you had? Actually, I have had an embarrassing amount of sleep. I wasn't on, uh, <laughs> I wasn't on overnight live blogging duties this time, so unbelievably rested compared to the rest of Westminster. <laughs> I have to say, it wasn't on purpose, but I woke up at uh, about 20 to 6 to turn on BBC News and suddenly be faced by uh, Hugh Edwards struggling to eat a croissant between uh, things, and <laughs> which is now doing the rounds on Twitter. So I was very pleased that I saw the most important moment of the night. <laughs> I think he said he was ashamed to say that he was eating a croissant. He was, but I don't know why. No one else knows why. There's no shame here, Hugh. So, in a little bit, we're going to turn to what seems to be set to be a historic result in Northern Ireland. But, But to begin with, we're going to kick off by looking at the state of play in England, Scotland and Wales. Alex Nice, IFG researcher and one of the leading figures behind our elections coverage and analysis, joins us now. Hi, Alex. Hi, Hannah. Anish, can you... Row back a little bit from where we are today and remind us of the expectation management that the party is engaged in. So can you remind us what was meant to be a good night or a bad night for the Conservatives and for Labour? Yes. So both sides were sort of zealously engaging in in expectations management as they do ahead of most local elections, but particularly in these midterm ones. So they were both claiming that, you know, it could on the conservative side they were sort of claiming that uh they could expect a loss of 800 seats a thousand seats you know it'd be lucky if we even won won one council seat in these elections that would be a good <laughs> night for us um and labor were doing much the same you know particularly in in councils that we now know that they've won um particularly those London councils, Westminster and Wandsworth, they were sort of making the point that it would be, you know, really difficult and uphill struggle. But actually, you know, underneath the surface, there was a lot of confidence. I was out with some of them door knocking in Barnet and, you know, they were being really, really cautious to say, well, you know, there's a lot of wards we'd need to win. Labour's never had a majority on this council before. But, um, you know, what I was also picking up on the other side was they were, they were already carving up, you know, cabinet positions on the council between themselves. So there was a lot of expectations management um which is you know important for party strategists to do so that they can sort of spin the results as some kind of success the next morning i don't think that's been particularly successful for either party actually this morning yeah so so tell us what are the early signals as i say it's mid midday on friday as we're recording so where are we at right now yeah well we mainly have a picture for for england and it's still patchy um we know from the results in London uh, that Labour has done particularly well. They've gained Wandsworth, Barnet, Westminster. Uh, These are sort of totemic Conservative councils. um, And, you know, it suggests a terrible night for the Tories and you've got these council leaders and other voices um, saying that it was national issues that did for them on the ground. In the rest of the country, it's a little bit more of a mixed picture. Um, 
the Conservatives have suffered a net loss, but they have picked up a notable number um, of seats from Labour in places like Nuneaton, which is sort of seen in, as this bellwether, um, Sandwell, which is in West Bromwich, Thurrock, Basildon and Amber Valley. But these gains are offset by Labour gains in some areas um, that they will be happy to have done well in, like Dudley, which had been changing from Labour to, to the Conservatives quite rapidly, Derby, and then Southampton and Chorley as well. So it's, it, you know, it's it's not easy to pick out a coherent narrative from these results. What it seems to show is that Labour isn't falling back dramatically in those areas that are red wall, so-called red wall seats at a constituency level. Um, the seats that they're fighting in those wards were last up in 2018, which of course was before the big red wall crumble. So even if they're doing slightly worse in those areas or standing still, you know, that doesn't suggest that they've done as badly as perhaps the Conservatives are trying to to paint. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I think, Alex, is there anything else you you would pick out from the England results? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the result in Southampton um, is an important one. The li- Liberal Democrats will be really uh, happy, I think, with their performance outside London, taking Hull from Labour, one of those rare Labour-Lib Dem um, battlegrounds. Uh, and in fact, they've gained more seats so far. Obviously, we're, we're only halfway through the count, uh, more seats than, than Labour. Um, and so they seem to be building building a, a position. But, you know, as Anoush said, um, we're, we're in this odd position where we're looking at the baseline from 2018. And so some of the expectation management from the Conservative Party was just arithmetically impossible. Um, they were only defending around 1,400 seats uh, across the country. So loss of 800 were never really, really realistic. And Kath, I mean, just thinking about the wider significance of this, at this point in the electoral cycle, we're one or two years out from a general election. How how should we read these sorts of results? Uh, yeah, I mean, we like to talk about them as midterms, as if we're sort of Americans, but it, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, partly because, um, you know, as Alex's great explainer, uh, on these going into these elections puts it, um, you know, oh, oh, the way we do local elections across the country is very variable. And so some places like they're only up, you know, a third of the seats are going. So it's like, it's like, it's all over the place. It's not even just that you get a load of them halfway through every electoral cycle. Um, so it's also the geography of where is up. And, and obviously there's a lot of focus on London and a lot of talk about what that means for metropolitan seats, uh, whereas a lot of the shires aren't up. Uh, so we're not seeing how it's working in, in, in other areas of sort of Tory strongholds. Um, uh, Alex actually came up with a great line earlier today, which is to call this the sort of choose your own adventure uh, election <laughs> results. And I think that's what we're seeing today. And it's not just in how the party leaderships are setting out, uh, you know, their post-election uh, game talk of what they think they've done well on and, and badly on and so forth. It's also about how sort of individual MPs and wings of each party start to see them. And for the Conservatives, for Boris Johnson, that's a big problem. There's lots of talk today about does he survive? Um, Short term, yes, he does. This doesn't seem to have led to a, you know, a sudden flurry of of cabinet ministers resigning and, you know, people, the whole party turning against him or anything like that. So, So we are as we were. The issue is whether or not you start to get Conservative MPs who are looking at these results and thinking, this is really bad for me in my particular seat. And the problem Boris Johnson has got is at the moment, he is just 
looking around to who he needs to please next. And is that on a national level, thinking about the election result from his perspective, how he gets to a majority, or is it pleasing the particular wings of his party that he's got to govern with over the course of the next however long? And also, does that mean that he looks for a particular moment and thinks actually now is the right time for an election? Uh, you know, already started talking about sudden elections and in theory, could be January 2025 is the latest he can do it. But that means we've got over two years of talking about will he choose for an early election? And that is not a great way to govern. Please, no. Yep. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anoush, um, as as uh, Kath says, you know, Conservative MPs will be sort of analysing these results. Now, during the campaign, we saw Conservative candidates, some Conservative candidates sort of trying to distance themselves from Boris Johnson in their campaign materials. But we also saw Keir Starmer towards the end having his own party gate problems. Do you think that... Beer cuts... gate is the phrase. Oh, that is the one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think that cut through? Uh, can we see evidence of that? I don't think that that story explicitly did cut through. I think while the Conservatives were working quite hard to push it, I think it was too late for the public, which of course um, picks up on issues in a lot slower way than we do in the Westminster bubble. But what I did pick up was I went out reporting um, in the suburbs of Wolverhampton in the Wolverhampton Northeast Westminster seat, which is a sort of red wall seat. Um, and people, while people were bringing up Partygate, a lot and saying, uh, talking about the sacrifices that they'd made during the the lockdown and how angry they were with Boris Johnson. They didn't mention the Keir Starmer story, but what they were saying is they're all as bad as each other. So I think there was a bit of this sentiment that, you know, Partygate was smearing all politicians as acting as if there's one rule for them and another for the for the country. And so I think, you know, this story, if it does rumble on about Keir Starmer and his own sort of curry and beer uh, during the um, tier restrictions, um, I think, you know, that's only going to add to that image, which is bad for politics in general, but also will make it challenging for Labour in those areas where there has been quite a lot of recent disaffection with the party, um, the places that may have voted Conservative for the first time or for the first time in decades, for example, which is where Labour really need to start rebuilding um, trust with voters. So I think, you know, the story isn't particularly helpful. I don't think it explicitly has affected the results of these elections, but it does add to this overall lack of trust in politicians, which meant that Partygate, you know, fairly or unfairly, was was uh, making the Labour Party, was lowering the Labour Party in people's estimations as well. And that's something that's been picked up in Shadow Cabinet. There was a report that Lisa Nandy at Shadow Cabinet recently was warning Keir Starmer that they shouldn't go too hard on Partygate because it was just making them all look bad. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. Alex, as Kath's already mentioned, you wrote a great piece for us ahead of the elections, identifying five key questions that would be answered on election day. Can you remind us what those were and which what which of them we may have answers to now? Well, unfortunately, some we don't yet have answers to because we don't have results for Wales or Scotland, um, where we were looking to see whether Labour could make gains. Um, Labour were pushed into third in Scotland um, in uh, 2017, the last time the election took place. Um, we also don't know the result of the Metro Mayor election in uh, South Yorkshire, which will be an interesting one to look out for, though um, we do know that turnout was very low, which is uh, worrying for the, the Metro model as a whole, since um, it's not very well embedded yet and people don't really understand what Metro Mayors do. Um, so that, that's a, a, a worrying signal. Obviously, the kind of the big question before the election and now is what it meant for Boris Johnson. 
and I think as Kath was laying out, um, we don't really have any sort of really striking new information uh, as far as we can see from these elections. There's no sort of game-changing result so far, uh, but it does sort of confirm that uh, the popularity of the Conservative Party has fallen um, and they, they are suffering losses. Um, so, And, of course, we do still have two by-elections coming up, so pressure could continue to build and we know that problems with um, cost of living and perhaps also party gate are not going to go away anytime soon. Just seen a breaking news story that Keir Starmer is going to be investigated by Durham police over beer gates, Anoush. So uh, (laughs) might be revising our views of of whether or not the public care about that. Um, So Anoush, what do you think the priorities are now for the Labour Party and for the Conservatives in the light of, of, of what we've seen today? Well, I think um, I think for the Labour Party, I think these election results have been a morale boost, um, and you can't underestimate that. Actually, um, particularly in, in in Barnet, I think is a good example of how Keir Starmer will probably take confidence from that. That the party has moved on from from the Jeremy Corbyn years. Um, it's an area with a very high Jewish population, um, and it was particularly difficult uh, for campaigners who were going out during the general election in 2019 to try and uh, to try and reap support from from voters there. And it seems that that has turned around. So you know that that that's a sort of symbolic break with the past for Keir Starmer's Labour Party. And the challenge now will be for him to channel that morale boost into into in, into articulating a vision, an alternative vision for the country under the Labour Party. I think voters are under the impression that sort of Labour is just hoping to squeak in by default because there are so many problems within the governing party. I mean, people who I was speaking to when I was out reporting were saying, oh, well, you know, if they'd heard of Keir Starmer at all, were saying, well, he's kind of been under the radar, hasn't he? He's kind of sort of been keeping his head down. Um Perhaps he has, you know, perhaps when your opponents are are having a terrible time, it is better to just, you know, let them fight it out. Um, But that's not good enough. That's not a positive sort of message for the country. And I think they're going to have to try and paint some kind of coherent picture in voters' minds of what a Labour uh, government would mean. Um, that's quite Just tenuous, but I think that is the thing because they've got so many policies, but they don't have an overarching vision for what those policies uh, sort of add up to. Um, and then on the conservative side, of course, the problem is is going to be what they do about the impact of inflation on people. At the moment, it seems to be what I'm sort of <laughs> what I'm characterising as macorbanomics, which is hoping something will turn up <laughs> while letting people's households sort of uh, bear the brunt of the impact. Um, and you know, people may think that. People may understand that it's not all the government's fault and, it, and the government can't do everything to help them through an economic crisis like this. But there was a global crisis during the pandemic and there were many drastic, radical measures that the government introduced then that were very popular, like furlough. And the expectation will probably be that they can do more to help them this time round. And Kath, um, we actually have Keir Starmer coming to the Institute on Monday to, mm. I think, start exactly what uh, Anoush has described there, trying to sort of set out some of the policy issues that, that Labour is is now going to sort of try and establish rather than um, just campaigning on the sort of uh, against party gate, as it yeah. were. But yeah. how do you think the mood will be in Westminster when MPs return? Uh, 
Uh, I mean, I think the mood for Ma- on Monday for Keir Starmer after a weekend in which he's probably being asked about it will be, you know, frustration of more questions about Beergate, but that's what he's probably going to get asked about and not policy detail because that is the way things go. Um, and um, I mean, I think it's an interesting question more generally about the Queen's speech next week and whether or not any of British politics can start focusing in a sort of strategic long-term way about policy issues because we are being dragged around from sort of, you know, the, the, sort of the political issue of the day to, to the next one. And we're seeing policy making being done in that same way of, um, you know, that you obviously had the Rwanda policy a couple of weeks ago, but also other sort of brainstorming by cabinet about ways to watch the, uh, solve the cost of living crisis. And, it is a bit frustrating for those of us who are really interested in in sort of government and not just politics to see so much sort of short termism in in our in our British politics. And yeah, I'm interested to see whether or not Labour can set out some kind of vision that um, isn't just reacting to what the the government is is doing. Um, but I'm also interested to see whether or not Boris Johnson can do that uh, on Tuesday. So so it's a it's a bit of a challenge for both of them, frankly. And Alex, just before you leave us, remind us, when does all this wrap up? Um, when do we get off all the results through? Well, counting is underway um, still across the country. Um, the the ballots from Orkney only arrived uh, on the mainland this morning. Um, so we should know from Wales and Scotland uh, by the end of the day. But Northern Ireland, and I think I'll check with Jess, we may not know until tomorrow. Um, so um, perhaps uh, the most consequential elections um, uh we won't actually have a, the final results today. Thanks so much, Alex. And that gives us a very good uh, segue straight into talking about Northern Ireland. And um, there's a lot of expectation that has been set up um, that this is going to be a historic election in Northern Ireland. And we are now joined, I'm delighted to say, by Jess Sargent, who is IFG senior researcher and our expert on government in Northern Ireland. Hi, Jess. Hi, Hannah. So, so why why these expectations? Why is this being described potentially as a as a historic election for Northern Ireland? So mainly because there is a chance that there could be a nationalist first minister in Northern Ireland for the first time. And I say could be because at the point that I'm speaking, we have no results at all to go off. Um, So this may all be wrong. Um, But yeah, there is an expectation since Northern Ireland was created. Essentially, there's always been a unionist first minister. But it's very important to remember that Northern Ireland has a very unique system of government. It has a mandatory coalition that requires different political parties and parties from different political communities so the unionist community and the nationalist community to be in government together. So Sinn Féin is already in government in Northern Ireland, but because of some shifts in various um, support for various parties, and it's all quite a complicated picture, we're not actually expecting that Sinn Féin will necessarily increase their vote share significantly or even gain many seats. But because uh, the DUP is looking like it will lose seats, um, those numbers will shift and, and we might possibly get Sinn Féin being the largest party, which will then entitle them to the first minister position. So this won't make much difference in practice in terms of day-to-day government because we'll have a multi-party executive. There'll have to be agreement between the first minister and the deputy first minister on pretty much anything they want to do. But it's certainly of symbolic importance. And what will the next stage in the process be once we have the results? 
So at some point in the next eight days, the Northern Ireland Assembly will meet for the first time. Um, at that meeting, all the members of the Legislative Assembly, MLAs, will either designate themselves as unionist, nationalist or other. And this is really important for then determining who's entitled to which seats, um, or to which ministerial positions and ultimately the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister positions. Um, so the first thing that the Assembly will need to do is appoint a Speaker and that will need to be a vote that has the support of nationalists and unionists. So there is a risk that... At that stage, um, if if they can't agree on a speaker, there's no one to um, oversee the proceedings to form a government and we just end there. Um, Hopefully that we'll be able to get past that stage. The next stage then is to nominate the first minister and the deputy first minister. It's the party with the most seats that will be entitled to nominate a first minister. Um, And then it's slightly complicated because it depends whether this party is um, also from the biggest designation, so unionist or nationalist or not, as to who gets the deputy first minister. But we expect in a situation where Sinn Féin um, were the first minister, you'd have a DUP deputy first minister. Um, Because of the way the system of government in Northern Ireland works, one of those cannot hold government and um, cannot hold the position without the other. Um, so we are expecting uh, that the DUP will not nominate whether that's first minister or a deputy first minister because of their objections to the protocol. And that will prevent us um, from them moving on and forming the rest of the executive. So we'll have this kind of deadlock in which you've, the assembly has met and um, exists, but uh, we haven't formed a new executive. So Jess, if the parties don't form a new executive then, will Northern Ireland be left without any ministers? Um, in terms of what happens immediately, if you can't form an executive, um, they've changed the, the rules to prevent a situation that we had between 2017 and 2019 where we had no right. ministers at all. Um, so that will allow the current ministers to stay on as kind of caretaker governments and they can do that for 24 weeks. Um, so up until October, there will still be ministers um, who can make decisions in areas like health and education. But because the first minister, the DUP first minister resigned in February, um, there will still be no first minister or deputy first minister. And that means that there's no cabinet essentially. So any kind of cross-cutting decisions, a new programme for government, a budget, those decisions can't be made. Um, but there will be some continuity there won't be this complete power vacuum up until October. If there's still no agreement in October, um, then the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is required to call an election um, within the next 12 weeks. So I think it's going to be a very long process, essentially, until we figure out where we land. And does direct rule become a factor at any point? Is that remain a possibility? So last time the uh, executive collapsed, the UK government was incredibly reluctant to impose direct rule. Um, and we saw this kind of power vacuum where civil servants were in charge of making decisions. And Westminster did legislate in some cases where it really needed to, like on budgets, but it tried to intervene as little as possible. Um, so I don't, I think that will really be very much a last resort, but it does partly depend on circumstances. You know, some people were saying that in the run up to, if there had been a no deal Brexit, that there might have had to be direct rule in in that circumstance because um, civil servants in Northern Ireland needed that ministerial direction, whether it was coming from Northern Ireland or the UK government. Similarly, around COVID, it's quite difficult to see how civil servants could have made those really difficult political judgments. So it will be very much a last resort for this UK government and hopefully they'll be able to re-establish an executive before that. And Anoush, I mean, Jess mentioned a little while back the uh, relevance of the Northern Ireland Protocol to all this. The Conservative government in Westminster really seemed to want to go into battle over that. Is that your? Is that still your understanding? Yes, I mean, you know, every now and again we get these briefings about it, and you know, you 
you expect at some point that might sort of um, these briefings might spill over into reality and that will be particularly difficult if um, Sinn Féin is is the largest party. I mean, remember in the Irish election uh, in 2020, Sinn Féin got the most first preference votes. So we could be looking at a future where you have a Sinn Féin majority throughout the island of Ireland. That could have big implications for the future of the protocol um, and also of the status of of Ireland and Northern Ireland itself. You know, you could see a future where there, you know, not at the moment because the polling suggests that there isn't that, there isn't that majority support for a united Ireland, but you could see the prospect of a border poll in future, which would, you know, cause constitutional chaos in, in Westminster, let alone in Northern Ireland. And then, of course, you know, the prospect of disruptive elections, the threat of direct rule, you know, these caretaker ministers, a government on ice is just really bad for Northern Irish society. The NHS waiting lists there are, are extreme. Um, and so, you know, you, you would hope that there's there's the prospect of, of stability down the line for the country. And, you know, it's it's partly these issues that, that are causing voters to look away from the status quo. And where is Labour on, on the protocol issues? We don't seem to hear as much from them. No, I mean, <laughs> I was speaking to a Labour source very close to Keir Starmer who basically told me that Labour is petrified of speaking about be- Brexit. Um, Keir Starmer has actually been on a visit to Northern Ireland and tried to address these, resu- these issues in, um, in recent times, but really they're very reluctant to talk about Brexit at all, mainly because of their reputation as, you know, wanting to try and overturn the result in some parts of the country, which is said to have been one of the reasons behind their huge defeat in the 2019 general election. So for me, it seems that there is still that squeamishness there. Um, but of course, if the Conservative government make true on their on their um, sort of uh, their intentions to try and go to battle over the, the protocol, then Labour will have to, to come up with its own position and be confident in articulating it. Uh, and Jess, I mean, Theresa May's government famously did a deal with the DUP. Do Labour have natural allies in Northern Ireland? Um, so there is the Social Democratic and Labour Party, um, one of the nationalist parties that you know share a similar a name. But I think the important thing to remember is that the UK government is supposed to have no selfish or strategic interest in Northern Ireland. It's meant to be one of the co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. And whatever political party, there's you're not really meant to pick sides, essentially. And I think that is part, as Kath was talking about earlier, part of the reason um, that we've had some of this disruption, because Brexit has... Um, created a situation, Brexit and also the the confidence and supply agreement that Theresa May had with the DUP has created a situation where the UK government might be closer to one party or the other. And we're seeing a lot, um, the UK government talking about um, needing to address unionist concerns on the protocol and be willing to go quite far in order to do that. And obviously, those are concerns that need to be addressed. But equally, we're expecting in these elections for there to be a majority in favour of parties that support the protocol. So the UK UK government needs to think very carefully here about not alienating one side whilst trying to address the concerns of the other. Um, and so I would warn quite carefully about um, some possible unilateral action that has been rumoured to be coming on the protocol might not actually be the best thing to ensure that power, power sharing um, can continue and can be stable in the longer term. And Kath, I mean, from a, from Boris Johnson's point of view, he's got a, he's got a difficult uh, balancing act now, hasn't he, between the interests of those in his party on his backbenchers 
and those of the country. Yeah, he has. And I mean, it goes to what I was saying earlier about the choose your own adventure for him. Um, unfortunately, all of the options are on the table and, and none of them seem to lead to a very good plot line. So um, he will be, you know, I, I think in the in the first place, he is dragged towards what worked towards for him in 2019. And we've seen that over the course of the last couple of years. And, and you don't see any immediate signs that he's going to suddenly pivot to a different sort of conservative theological um, position. But there are all of these big questions. You've got a conservative party raising taxes for for many conservatives. And and remembering that councillors are going to come out of this. Those are the people at the core of the conservative party. They're going to be coming out of this with their views about what they've been hearing on the doorstep. And uh, and some of them very aggrieved with that. Um, He's got his right wing of the party who obviously, you know, very concerned about um, keeping him to some extent because they want to keep uh, the benefits of, of everything that they've achieved in the last few years. But at the same time, he's got the One Nation Conservatives very concerned about the direction of travel of of the party. Um, and you, like I say, you're going to have all of these different conservative MPs who are worried about what it means for their own particular constituency or indeed about, you know, future prospects of um, being in government if you're if you're sitting in a safe seat. So, yeah, where he gets pulled and in what direction, um, these are going to be really interesting questions to see. I think it's it's all too late for anything to change much for the for the Queen's speech. But where he goes, whether he does a reshuffle, you know, how he tackles his party, how he does party management um, um, in Parliament for the next sort of few months and what he does about these big issues that, you know, are very tricky to, to sort out, like Northern Ireland and the protocol. These are, these are big questions. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Thank you so much to Alex Nice, Jess Sargent, Kath Haddon, and of course to Anish Shukelian. Great to see you, Anish. And thank you to you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And now that you've got a taste for voting, please vote for us. We appreciate all the views, good and bad. And don't forget to visit our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our local elections analysis. And one more plug from me. Uh, you can watch last week's uh, launch event for my book, Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? And the audio is on our sister podcast channel, IFG Live 2. And we'll be back next week, by which point all the votes will have been counted, but by when the political fallout will no doubt still be underway. See you then, everyone. <laughs>